So uh, we are in the, uh, the, the middle of, or the beginning side of um, a three-month-long sermon series uh, dedicated from uh, moving from slavery to sonship, or um, moving from an understanding of who we are as just people to, to being a child of God, how we see God, how we relate to God. The last two weeks, what we have done is we've set this up by talking about God as Father, moving from an understanding of God as King, which He is, to also God as Daddy, which He is. And what does that do when you make that shift? What does it do when you begin, um, like John, John John, sit under the Oval Office desk with the, the, the most powerful man in the free world above you, and you just see him as Dad? What does it do when you change your relational attributes that way? Today, we've been focusing on how we see God. Now today, we're going to shift for the next couple of weeks into how we see ourselves. We've been talking about this idea of moving from seeing yourself as a servant to a son. But but what does that really look like and what does that really mean and where are the pitfalls? What does it mean to see yourself as an heir or to see yourself as an orphan? How do you function in those roles? There is a, a great scripture, um, the prodigal son, that just is thick with this imagery. Um, but Casey Harris is preaching next week, and she said she wanted that scripture, so I have to find something else. She's like this tall, but she's really feisty. So, so we're going to focus on something different, a different aspect of it. C.S. Lewis in 1942 um, delivered a sermon from St. Mary's Church. It's the Church of Oxford. All the colleges kind of surround it. It's right there in, on High Street. And in this sermon, it was called The Weight of Glory. In this sermon, he, he talks about this kind of, in a way. If you think about what's going on in 1942, kind of a lot. They are in the middle of World War II, although in England they don't call it World War II. They call it the War of 1938 to 1944. Am I right, Lawrence? No? You're not even really from England, are you? World War II. Oh, yeah, that's right. That's what we call it. Cheerio. Um, So (laughs) I meant to ask you backstage. I would have saved that whole little interchange right there. Um, So (laughs) I was told by people who were apparently lying to me that they don't call it that. But it was kind of a big deal. Um, in, in World War II in England, you know, we find ourselves in the state of war right now. But unless you're in the military, it doesn't really affect you. Unless you are in the military or you're, you have a family member is, that is in the military, we are so separated from it that it seems like just a movie. Even World War II here in the States did not have the same experience as the people in England. So Lewis goes up to deliver this sermon in the midst of the entire country getting bombed all the time, especially London and those areas around it, just constant bombing. At this time, he probably had, living in his home, um, he had anywhere from four to seven girls, usually no more than four um, at a time, living in his home, and they were refugees from London. Kids that were sent away from their parents. This may start thinking Narnia things to you. Yes. Um, that were sent to live in the country where it was safer. Oxford was, was only bombed. One bomb came close to Oxford only one time. 
And it is, I'm not going to ask Lawrence this because I could be wrong, so I'm just going to tell you and it's going to be truth. Um, it is believed that Hitler wanted Oxford as his capital, so he stayed away from bombing it because it was so beautiful to him that he's like, no, this is going to be my city in England. All of these people know that at any moment, they didn't know that at the time, at any moment, bombs could drop on them. And Lewis gets up and delivers one of his most powerful sermons ever, the weight of glory. In it, he doesn't talk about the war at all. Rather, what he talks about is an understanding of who you are. What it begins to speak about is this understanding that, that we all have a longing. We all have this longing and this need. It, it, he says, when you read a great poem, what the poem does, you, does for you is takes you into this place where you, you want to be there. Now, we would say when you watch a great movie, but him, it was poetry. When you read a great poem, it takes you into a place of a, of a country that you long to visit of an experience that you long to have, because we all have inside of us this innate sense that there is something more out there. We have this experience of wanting home. A lot of people have described this sermon as, um, he's talking about homesickness, that you have this longing to be in your heavenly home. There is a moment when you go and you meet God face to face. And it is this moment when it is said in the, in the text that you will have the glory of God put upon you. And this, he says, was um, from his understandings of Augustine and other writers. He says what this means is God is looking at you and God is saying, well done. I approve. I love. This moment when you meet God is that moment when you get to see God face to face. And what God says is, I love you. We have this longing to hear those words. We have this longing to have a place where we feel that. We have a longing to live a life where we're not scratching and striving. In Luke chapter 12, Jesus is teaching the disciples. And he says, look at the lilies and how they grow. They don't work or make their clothing. Yet Solomon in all his glory was not dressed as beautifully as they are. And if God cares so wonderfully for flowers that are here today and gone tomorrow, won't he more surely care for you? You have so little faith. And don't worry about food, what to eat and drink. Don't worry whether God will provide it for you. These things dominate the thoughts of most people, but your father already knows your needs. He will give you all you need from day to day if you make the kingdom of God your primary concern. Now, in this teaching, what Jesus is asking us to do is, is to rest. What he's asking us to do is to live in such a knowledge of God's provision and God's love that we're not constantly striving or trying to prove ourselves to the world. How many of you ever feel the need to prove yourself in any given situation? Yeah, the rest of you are liars. We all have time to time that we move into these relationships, these groups of people that we want them to understand who we are on some level. 
right? Maybe it's some job thing. You walk into a meeting and you need the other people to understand that you have this. I understand what the deal is. I can take care of this deal. Maybe it's uh, you're meeting your in-laws for the first time and you need to prove yourself to your father-in-law. That's right. What? I'm going to marry your daughter. And you need to prove yourself that way. There's all these different scenarios and situations that we find ourselves in when we feel like we've just got to say something or do something. I realized that I had been doing this. Um, Around here, I don't know if you know this, but our community is kind of into the Hebraic root. Have you heard anything about that? Um, but, But there's all this talk of we are grafted into the root of Jesse. Which is scripture and it's true and all this great stuff. And, and one of the things that I always say to, to everybody that usually says this is I'm like, I'm not grafted in. I'm part of the root. I'm like, what? I'm Jewish. My family, you go two generations back, we're Jewish. Yeah, that's right. You just want to be Jewish, son of Israel. I love to talk about Scott Hare. Scott Hare goes to Israel all the time. I'm like, every time you show up, people are like, hey, who's the big white guy from America? When I show up, they're like, welcome home, my son. <laughs> and I realized that I think one of the reasons I was doing that is I was trying to prove something. Like, who cares? Really? I mean, sure. Oh, yeah, you want to be Jewish. Guess what? Because I had anything to do with that, right? I was in complete control of that. I was in complete control of the fact that I am six foot two. I used to hang in my closet. It's great. And then I stopped at one point. I'm like, nope, that's tall enough. No. But a lot of times we find ourselves having to prove these things that we have no control over. You know, some people, like the lilies of the field, just get up every day and people are like, man, you're good looking. They don't have to prove it. Daryl wakes up every morning, doesn't do a thing, just walks out into the world and people are like, oh. Daryl, look at his T-shirt. <laughs> I don't see him this service. Last service I did, it was more fun. Um, but some of us have to wake up and we try to like spend extra time on things because we want the world to see us in a certain way. You know, some of us, like, I, I went through a couple of wardrobe changes this morning. I'm not going to lie to you. It's not true. I just changed my pants. That's it. And, and I did have my shirt tucked in at one point. And I was like, no, nah, untuck it. Okay. There's some certain things that we feel a little bit of need to like stress and to strive. And and these are little miniature things. One thing I never worry about is my hair because, wow, God did awesome on that. But but there are certain things and individual things that we try to strive for. And those are really minuscule little things. But then we start opening it up to other things. Jenna and I, when we went to England this summer, said that our, our, our motto for the summer was no striving. No striving. We are not going to strive this summer. We are not going to um, do everything we can to get grace to talk. We are not going to spend hours and hours of frustration trying to get grace to go to the bathroom on the potty. We are not going to strive for these things this summer. No, this summer is a summer where we just rest. Because when we get home, it's back to therapies, it's back to schedules, it's back to appointments, it's back to all that stuff. Right now, no. Rest. I gotta tell you, it was so wonderful. It was so amazing. The other place that I didn't strive was my relationship with God. And you know what? 
I had a better relationship with God this summer than I've had in a long time. I wasn't pressing. You know, that people a lot of times say, press into God. It's almost striving mentality there. Scratch and claw your way into God's relationship. Do everything you can to be closer to God. I don't think that's how it goes. Look at the lilies of the field. They just sit there. They do nothing and they're beautiful. Because God made them that way. In this weight of glory sermon, what what Lewis says is we spend so much time thinking about how we think about God. When what we should be doing is thinking about how what he thinks of us. What we should be focusing on is not our theology, not all of those essentials and non-essentials and the thing that breaks churches apart. But what we should begin to do is think about what God thinks of us. And if you begin to think about that, the answer is he loves you. The answer is he loves you. When you have this identity as a son, as a daughter of God, when you have this understanding that your home is not here, but your home is with him, that one day you will meet him face to face and his glory will come upon you. When you have an understanding and you're living a life that way, you're not striving for anything. When you don't have an identity, when you don't have a home, when you're unsure of things, you're insecure and you're looking for that next thing to bring you security. Is it your job? Is it a friendship? Is it a material possession? Is it something else? What is the next thing that's going to bring me a little sense of security? And guess what? When you get it, security gone. But when you have home, when you have an identity, when you understand That God loves you. You become a lily of the field. You become a raven. You have this understanding that it's not about what you do. God loves you. It's not about the choices that you've made. God loves you. There's nothing you can do about the fact that God created you. There's nothing you can do about the fact that as you look around this room, as you look around the entire world, there has never been a single person who has been created that was not lovingly created by God. Now, some of us did make bad choices and have made bad choices and are making bad choices. Some of us have done horrendous, terrible things. But maybe it was because they didn't understand that they were loved unconditionally and they didn't have to work for it. Maybe it was because they didn't have a sense of where their true home was or what their true identity was. If we move into this understanding as God is Father, which means I am son, daughter. Now, it'd be a poor father who would let the children run around and do anything they wanted without saying anything. We all know those parents. Some of you are those parents. You let your kids do anything. You go to the restaurant, La Fonda, kids are everywhere throwing chips. You're like, oh, they're just being boys. They're just being kids. They don't know any better. Ma'am, they're 14 years old. (laughs) Some of you are looking at a son right there. That's awesome. That's great. Some of you, not good parents, right? From time to time, God is disapproving of us. 
from time to time, God is disappointed in the way we act. Look, I love Corbin. Man, I love that kid. But there are things sometimes when he just drives me nuts. Things that I get so disappointed in the way he acts or the way he speaks or the way he does something. I'm like, hey, it doesn't change the fact that I love you, that I'm about to whoop you. It's because I love you. It's going to hurt me, but it's going to hurt me. It's not. It's not true at all. But I would be a poor daddy if I let him do whatever he wanted. Because he doesn't know. He's six. He looks like he's 12, but he's six. God would be a poor father if he didn't give us correction every now and then. God would be a poor father if he didn't leave us these directions. Love one another. Love me, love each other. You get those two down, pretty good. But it doesn't begin with trying to prove yourself to God because you can't. Corbin doesn't need to prove himself to me. My love is there. It will not change. It will not leave. We do not have to prove ourselves to God. His love is there. Let us begin to understand our identities as sons and daughters of the Most High God. That we have a home. He's calling you to know and to believe in the fact that He loves you. That He loves you. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the fact that while we were still sinners, you sent your Son to die so that we might have life. You sent your Son to teach us and to remind us that you weren't just his Father, but you're our Father, who lives in heaven and who loves us and created each one of us. God, I know from time to time we make choices that disappoint you. Forgive us for those moments and put us back on the path of righteousness. God, I pray that you would help all of us to understand ourselves. No longer as just mere inhabitants of an earth by happenstance. But as wonderfully and lovingly created daughters and sons, heirs to the kingdom of heaven. We thank you and praise you in the name of Jesus. Amen.